Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Today I have with me Steve Dennis. Steve is a consultant, keynote speaker, and author focused on retail growth and innovation. He has been named a top global retail influencer by multiple organizations, and his thoughts on the future of shopping are regularly shared in his role as a Forbes senior contributor. His new best-selling book is Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption. During my talk with Steve, we discuss his new book and a few of the eight essentials he outlines as key principles for becoming remarkable. Steve speaks with the wisdom gained from doing the hard yards of being in retail as a senior leader for some of the biggest and best-known brands. I thoroughly enjoyed our talk as we cover not only the history of how we got here, but what the road looks like ahead. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, first, congratulations on your book. And I can see that it's doing quite well. Yeah, it was an interesting time for the book came out pretty much right during the pandemic. So it was an interesting time to try to launch a book. But thankfully, it's been pretty well accepted and uh, continues to sell well. So Yeah, well, before we get into it, I know uh, from what you stated, and I think the early uh, beginnings of that, that you uh, had this on your bucket list to write a book. So take me to that moment when you said, I'm actually going to do this. And you actually set out on that quest to write it. Well, I'll try, I'll try to keep it short because uh, it's a little bit of a long journey. But yeah, as you said, I, I've, uh, I've wanted to write a book for quite some time. I like writing. I've written, I don't even know, close to a thousand blog posts and Forbes articles over the last decade been doing speaking quite a lot the last few years. So we're definitely working on all sorts of content for a while, um, but never quite had the right lens on what I thought would, would carry a whole book. But I think maybe three or so years ago, particularly as I was speaking uh, and having to develop the storyline around what I was going to talk about, uh, a framework and narrative started to develop. And then I just started kind of putting the pieces together. And then, you know, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm just going to sit down and really try to outline this as a book. And I went through that process and that gave me more confidence. And ultimately, I just had to sit down and really pound the thing out. But it really was an accumulation of ideas over a fairly extended period of time. But it was probably about three years ago where I really pivoted to saying, okay, I think I've got something that I could could turn into a book. Well, I've got one in process and I don't think people have any clue how, if you've never written one, how hard that is and how long it takes. And so congratulations on that. That's quite an achievement. Thanks. Uh, you know, it is, I mean, it is a lot of work. The one thing I will say is that even for people that have, maybe you're finding this, even for people that have done a lot of writing in shorter form, I wouldn't say that's always easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's certainly not for me, but yeah, it's just very daunting to try to be able to carry a narrative and a set of ideas over 200, 250, 300 pages. It is really just a different different thing, even if you've done a lot of writing. Yeah. So. 
Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I've, I do read a lot, and I've this is the book when I read it, and it came out in 2020. It's the first book I've seen in a long time that really goes into retail with some great principles or essentials. But not only that, I think that what I enjoyed about it is the uh, pragmatism in it. And you read a lot of things from consultants and professional services type people about you just need to do this, you just need to do that. But if you're not actually worked in retail uh, and been in that space, you you may not appreciate just how hard some of those steps are. So you're very candid about the difficulty, the dive facing, facing it. So if we want to talk about the book for a second, the first part goes into a great job of providing context, case studies, and some history on how we basically got here. But in the second part, you lay out these eight essentials that give people quite a bit to chew on. And perhaps we can take a bit of a, a, a walk, a quick walk around some of the early part, the six probably or the uh, table stakes, as you call them, uh, to right. highlight some of that and just get your top line high level thoughts about each of those. Is that OK? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. What I, what I try to do, as you say, in part one is really set, set the stage, but the, the backdrop really for the eight essentials is this idea of the need to be remarkable, that even mm. being very good is no longer good enough. Yeah. And that's really anchored in a lot of experience I had, both in retail executive roles as well as a consultant, of seeing how product choice was expanding, access was expanding, information was becoming ubiquitous. And, you know, really was quite easy for, or increasingly easy for customers, particularly with the advent of e-commerce, to make it almost seamless to be able to find substitutes right. for almost any product or find a pretty good alternative to whatever it is you were selling as a retailer at a cheaper price or more, more mm -hmm. conveniently. And so a lot of the scarcity that existed in distribution and choice and so forth for many, many years has really been evaporating, again, particularly because of e-commerce. And so to me, that just upped the bar from a competitive standpoint. And, uh, and then this idea borrowed very liberally from, from Seth Godin and his purple cow idea about really being remarkable in that not only are you offering something unique and distinctive, but something that literally people are willing to talk about. And so as I was, as that became kind of an overarching idea for some of my work over the last few years, what I started to think about was, okay, well, what are the elements of being remarkable? What are both the basic foundational pieces, but also the differentiating pieces? And as I've worked previously in industry and as I worked as a consultant, and then I did some some studying, I started to see these common themes across most, if not all, retailers. And my general caveat, or I have two caveats about the essentials. One is retail is such a huge field, as you know, there's yeah. a lot of different types of retailers. So I hesitate to say that all eight of these will apply powerfully for every single retailer, whatever their situation might be. But I do find that um, they can be pretty consistently applied. And the other thing is I very deliberately call them essentials, uh, or you could call them elements, rather than steps, because they are not, you know, it's not like a recipe, you do one, then you do two, you do three, you know, the mix of them or the order of them might vary depending upon your situation. So, so that's what behind that's behind the eight essentials. Well, that's helpful. And for those that uh, don't know, you have a great podcast that's just been launched uh, fairly recently. The, I think your first episode was with Seth Godin, and you guys talked about Remarkable uh, yeah. and how that – so you guys have had a pretty close relationship for some time, actually, in school together. Is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah, we've known each other. Uh, we, we were in the same graduating class at Tufts University in a year that I won't mention, but quite a long time <laughs> ago. And uh, we actually started a business together or found ourselves in business during our the beginning of our junior year yeah. and uh, have been friends ever since. So yeah, it's been a long, long journey as friends and occasionally mm. collaborating on some things. Mm. You know, there's two types of retailers you would might look at it perhaps is the the big mass large retailers and the those that are are a little more agile or niche uh in growing in into how they grow and so one of the questions that i had from a macro standpoint on remarkable retail is there's probably a bit of a reason why a lot of people find themselves in this muddled middle uh and it's probably because of the volume that's there to chase Ooh, yeah. and uh to become remarkable for the larger guys for the for the niche players and those just starting out they probably almost always enter into uh, the space from a remarkable perspective and then lose it over time as they scale and grow but yeah. do you, you find it a bit more challenging on uh, it doesn't make it any less true that you have to be remarkable but right. there's some empathy for the the guys stuck in the big middle and perhaps how they got there yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on. I mean, I, I certainly think that it is a kind of classic challenge to go from whatever made you unique, remarkable, whatever you want to describe mm -hmm. in the early days, and then the demands, particularly as a public company, to yep. scale. And I use this term advisedly, but to sort of dumb down what you're doing. But, you know, you can certainly find plenty of specialty retailers, whether that's in the home goods or apparel or what have you that in order to attract a wider audience had to get into other product categories or different yeah. price points or you know what have you to be able to scale the business beyond its original place i mean starbucks i think is is, yeah. is another company that's gone through a couple of iterations where you know when they were very much about the independent kind of coffee star <laughs> coffee yeah. store ethos uh, you know, that's not the kind of business that's going to have 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever locations they had. So they, in order to chase growth, they had to do some different things and make it a little bit less special. So it's, I think it's a classic, a classic balancing act. Um, and it is very hard to preserve those things that often got you to one level um, yeah. at the next at the next level. Uh, but I also think people get stuck in the middle just because the world has changed on them and you know certainly if you yeah. look at mega spent a lot of time on this in the book uh, but if you look at the moderate department store space and i worked at sears a million years ago but you know sears was the biggest retailer on the planet at one time and sears was actually sears opening retail stores out of its catalog business and being uh, very intertwined with the growth of the regional shopping mall i mean at one point regional shopping malls were remarkable and sears was the remarkable anchor tenant, but, uh, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years, a lot has happened in terms of alternative retail formats and the way yeah. consumers spend their time and, and so forth. So, so sometimes either because of, um, shifts in culture, shopping preferences, alternative choices, you know, the world moves away from you and what made you special no longer works anymore. Yeah, uh, probably you could almost call it uh, remembering remarkable retailer because I bet in some people's DNA, especially if you've been in a company for a long time, that you, it felt more remarkable in the past when you were starting out. Uh, and it's a bit of a return to that maybe at times. You know, you mentioned um, 
Sears. That was one of my first jobs in college was working in Columbus at the distribution, this monstrosity of a distribution center. You might have been there. <laughs> I have been there, yes. In in Columbus. And so it's a, it was quite a great experience. But um, but it, I don't know what, where Sears was on the charts in, in 81, 82, but uh, it definitely was still a pretty big player. I think I think in the early '80s, Sears was. I think through all, pretty much all the '80s, Sears was still the biggest biggest yeah. retailer. I think it it started to flip early '90s, maybe when Walmart uh, mm. passed them. But um, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of one of the points I make in the book, and particularly I think uh, you know the current COVID situation is that it, it's easy to see, particularly this year, but, but even in the last 10 years, all this massive disruption and, you know, the ascent of Amazon and others, um, most obviously, but retail has been a pretty dynamic Mm. industry. There've been different waves, uh, you know, certainly the regional mall era, then the discount mass merchant era, Walmart, Target, et cetera, then big box specialty, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Best Buy, Circuit City in the day, and, you know, then Kohl's is off the mall, department stores. And so, you know, while the pace of change, I think, is absolutely accelerating and Moore's Law hasn't skipped over retail, it's always been a very dynamic industry. I just think, you know, now things happen more quickly and obviously the more that things are digital and less anchored in big brick and mortar, you know, it's got a lot of different different dynamics. Yeah, it, you know, I was in uh, 1991. I was working for Procter and Gamble, calling on Walmart, and mm-hmm. we had a at that time P and G. I think it was bigger than Walmart. I mean, who would have thought? Mm-hmm. But uh, in one of the top to top meetings, I had an opportunity to be in. We were talking about some things like um, pricing on diapers. Uh, if it's a little bit, Walmart wanted it cheaper, they could get more traffic, mm-hmm. right? Um, out of stocks and cosmetics. Uh, looking at, you know, and I could think back in 91 of the three or four items that were on the agenda. And I fast forward to meetings I might have been in last year at, at ASDA in the UK. The the variables don't, they we're still talking about the same things in a lot of ways. Uh, of inventory flow. So the, the variables themselves are pretty consistent in retail. It's not that complicated, but but the dynamic of how they're in interplay with each other is just really dynamic and no two days yeah. are alike. And is, is that your experience? Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually working on, on something now where I'm talking a little bit about my journey from Sears to Neiman Marcus, which mm-hmm. I sometimes mockingly call going from the outhouse to the penthouse. <laughs> and, and, you know, part of the kind of obvious superficial things I noticed right away was obviously the Neiman Marcus customer, you know, much wealthier price points, yeah. higher. Uh, my colleagues dressed a lot better than my former colleagues at Sears, you know, so yeah. there were some pretty obvious differences, you know, dollars per square foot spent on yeah, the sure. bill that, you know, superficially, a lot of things were the same, but after a few weeks sitting in operating reviews, staff meetings or whatever, you know, we're still talking about sell through rates and gross yeah. margin and inventory yeah. turnover. And are we taking care of the customer or not? Right. Maybe our, our view of customer, not maybe, but the view of customer service, certainly at Neiman's was different than it was at Sears. But, you know, the guts of what makes for mm. a great customer experience is, I think, I think pretty pretty common. It just has to be versioned to 
the particular purchase occasion or, or customer segment. And, you know, that can be quite different. But I also advise them on several advisory boards to of tech companies that serve the retail industry. And when they're talking about how to present their offering to retailers, I said, well, you know, almost regardless of what you're selling, it still comes back to, you know, are you getting more traffic? Are you mm-hmm. helping me convert the traffic? Are you mm-hmm. helping me convert the traffic at a higher average order value or right. margin? Are you driving repeat? You know, it's a retail formula and certain levers that are pretty much ubiquitous, uh, whether you're, I mean, obviously it operates differently on a website than it does in a store. Um, but the mechanics or the underlying kind of engineering of the, the profit equation, uh, the guts of it are, are really similar across category and type. Of they are. And I think that makes it pretty exciting, actually. And it's it makes every day a, a bit different because it's where you put the emphasis on the metrics. And uh, one of the shifts I've seen that's been a bit challenging, and I understand how we got there, is looking at store labor productivity hmm. and how you measure store labor. Uh, and depending on how much of a microscope you put on that, uh, there's where you see some of the evolution of poor customer service because customer service, if you're doing a case rate type labor uh, evaluation of how you're looking at store labor and labor is really now very expensive in the grand scheme of the total model, um, where do they go to pick up hours to hit the monthly? Because every measure has this gamification a bit of what, the unintended consequence that it's hard to, to mitigate. And uh, if a service desk is, uh, you're not measuring those hours in the productivity of the core store, that's where you go to get surplus hours to make up perhaps, right? right? And so it's the unintended consequences that we have when when some of these metrics, like you said, they've been there, they're, they're, they're very similar dynamics, but it's what how you put the emphasis on which ones that drive certain behaviors that almost always gets you an unintended consequence. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like it's been complicated. I mean, it's, you know, there's an aspect that's been always somewhat complicated. I think it's been especially complicated the last few years. One, because I think if you're a retailer and like this goes back for a while uh, or goes back a while when I was at Sears, uh, but I've seen this same dynamic kind of played out, whether we're talking about pennies or Macy's mm-hmm. or whatever. But if you're a retailer, that's having a hard time driving sales. And the only thing you can control or you feel like you can control is expenses. And that's that's the way you're gonna improve profit. It puts so much pressure on your expense base. And again, you know, if, if you're having a hard time getting revenue going, then you cut back on store hours or maybe you cut back on investing in the store which then tends to have longer term impact of making matters worse. So it's it's easy if you're not understanding the interrelationship between expenses and revenue and loyalty and all that other good stuff to keep tightening the screws, what I call in the book, optimizing to extinction, (laughs) Uh, just like slowly, slowly um, doing things. And then, you know, I feel like the pilot is coming on the intercom saying, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin our initial descent. And it's a descent that many retailers don't seem to be able to pull out of. Yeah, but I think yeah. the other thing, and mm-hmm. I think we're absolutely seeing this accelerated by the pandemic, is the changing role of the store and um, how stores are much, I mean, this has been true prior to the pandemic, but I think it's just become much more obvious that stores are playing uh, a broader role in kind of the whole ecosystem of the brand where store associates are known not only 
sometimes helping, you know, depending upon the type of store it is, could be more or less, but store associate might be helping a customer who is then going to transact online at a later date, or they may be running product for curbside pickup or fulfilling an online order. And so I think it's getting more complicated for uh, brands to understand the interrelationship between the digital and physical channel, um, as well as managing labor in, in sometimes, you know, very different ways than simply I'm filling the shelves and I'm at the checkout. Yeah. You know, all floating boxes on the dock or, or whatever. I think the, yeah. the labor equation is getting a little bit more complicated. And, and, and I think when uh, we look at this customer centric idea, and I know you touch on, on, on several of the uh, essentials, it sounds easy or it sounds like it should be intuitively easy to, to execute, but some of the realities of retail uh, get in the way. So for example, um, in my experience from grocery and produce, you could absolutely get to 100% fresh in produce, uh, but the waste you would drive from that would be so expensive. And so you're trying to optimize how, how fresh do you want to be versus the waste that you're, you're going to generate and which is cost in it, but it's also not great to, to throw away that much produce. And so, so you're always trying to optimize to get the counterbalance of anything you try to push as a lever. There's always a counter lever, it seems, in retail that has a negative consequence if you go too far, right. whether it's a classics markdowns. One of the, the uh, challenges uh, or way to diagnose, I think, uh, a retailer is to look at, the, look at the question, who authorizes markdowns? Is it the store can authorize a markdown or does it have to be through the merchant? And uh, if the store has that power, then they were probably going to move that out pretty quickly. You would know this better than anybody from a department store. But if the merchant has that power, they might want to hold on a little bit longer. And all of a sudden, the yeah, store experience yeah. gets a little crowded. I mean, just yeah. talk about that particular dynamic, because that's a great illustration. And with your background, department stores, how you solve that markdown question and still be customer centric. Well, I feel like at, at one level, and maybe this is overly simplistic, it, it's kind of the epic battle between effectiveness and efficiency, mm -hmm. understanding what problems you're trying to solve for, because there, there's certainly lots of things you can do uh, from a near-term perspective or a financial metric-only perspective that might be shooting you in the foot That's right. from customer loyalty and brand differentiation and all those kinds of things. So I think a, a, a big couple big things. One is I, th I think it's very important to have very good segmentation so that when you're talking about the customer, you you have more um, clarity and granularity about what you're talking about because very few brands have a customer uh, in, yeah. in a very generic way, right? They have multiple That's segments right. that value well, are of different values to the enterprise, but also That's value right. different things in terms of their needs, wants, stories they want to tell about themselves. So I think you have to have some sense of which customers are we talking about, uh, which purchase occasions to try to get it a little bit more more focused. Well, in, in, on that point, you mentioned in the book, and I've used it as well, RFM. It's been around a while, but recency, yeah. frequency, and monetary. And being able to tie that perhaps to the call center so that when that person's on the phone, you know, who are you really talking to? And I, and I still think most retailers haven't connected those dots yet. No, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, certainly technology is- Can do it, yeah. 
a lot more of the ability to not only do the value modeling, customer lifetime value assessment, mm-hmm. but also to operationalize that at point of sale or in the call center or whatever. But yeah, there aren't that many retailers that are really actively doing it. And, um, you know, it's also very, very complicated. I think is, this is a little bit off your question, but I think one of the things that I've seen be so powerful in the last few years in particular is to not only have an actual customer segmentation and understand customer metrics at a deeper level, but to be doing customer journey mapping so you understand where you have the biggest opportunities to fix underlying issues or hopefully do something really remarkable, remarkable that you can you can amplify. And that, in, you know, that information informs, I think, part of your question, which is, you know, where do you care the most about taking markdowns? You know, what, mm-hmm. what financial lever you're most trying to pull? Because uh, if, you're, if you're focused on your most valuable customers and prospects, you might make some different decisions for certain customers than just sort of the broad brush rule of, yeah. oh, you take this markdown on that's this right. date just because that's what our system, our markdown optimization system tells us we should do. There should be some, I think, overlay around customer value and a broader brand kind of true north to inform those decisions ideally. But, you know, it gets into a level of complexity that a lot of retailers are not. And that complexity often carries cost of investment to get to that complexity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, (laughs) you know, I I always joke around that, you know, it's, it's easy to do everything based upon the averages. Right. Yeah. Um, But, you know, nobody's, or generally speaking, if you do a distribution, nobody actually represents the average, right. The the interesting thing, like I'll, I'll just pick on bed, bath and beyond for a while, you know, bed, bath and beyond's, promotional strategy for a long time has been the 15% coupon. And pretty much all you know is that lots of people won't buy anything unless they have the 15% coupon because, because that for them, that's become regular price and other people will not buy because 15% isn't enough. And since it's applied to every category, you could just say, well, 15% off in some categories is not a particularly good deal if you were to price that on Amazon, let's say. That's right. And in other categories, it's excellent. And the way they solve for that is by eliminating a lot of products from the 15% discount, which just causes customers to go, well, this is kind of a con. And so, you know, so they've managed the business from this kind of average markdown strategy and this kind of, you're an idiot if you don't use the coupon. And, yeah. and all they've done really is not been able to do markdowns in a very precise way, yeah. left money on the table for some customers, not create enough of a discount for others, and then just pissed off a bunch of people because they have so many exclusions. And But it's a very simple to execute <laughs> program, right? Yeah, It's very simple. No, no I, I you think know? you make a great point. It just doesn't I, work. Yeah, yeah, well, a lot of the uh, customer data you look at in retail uh, historically has been there to uh, serve merchandising and help think about category planning and, and do that. But uh, more recently turning toward the customer and really understanding the customer segmentations is is a bit newer and getting an RFM model that can be used or a some value model that can be used in business decision-making, whether that is markdown optimization. Uh, you, you don't have to go all the way to personalization of customer data to get those benefits back to no, be no, customer centric. Yeah, I, I, you know, my experience with with more, I guess, targeted marketing broadly is there, there. I mean, it's certainly 
a nice idea. And conceptually, I buy into the idea of one-to-one marketing. I mean, I talk about that in my book. I was a huge fan of Don Pepper's and Martha Rogers' work 20 years ago. I mean, it sounded fantastic to me. I think they were a little bit ahead of their time in terms of what um, culturally and what could be done technologically. But certainly the closer you get to one-on-one with the customer, the better chance you have to serve them well. But don't I don't think we have to let that be a barrier to doing some things that can make whatever you do more personalized and relevant. It doesn't have to be exactly segment of one. Exactly. Um, and you know, A-B testing can accomplish a lot. Um, at Neiman Marcus, we developed some fairly straightforward models that greatly improved relevance, mm-hmm. uh, but we're not literally one-to-one. They might have, have 32 segments or yep. you know, some combination of variables and emails or something like that. So, so I think it's about getting progressively more customer relevant and with any luck, developing that learning relationship with the customer so that when you put something out and it isn't getting a good response that you can learn from that and apply that to your models and make it progressively more relevant. So I think, I think there, yeah, there's lots of fairly simple targeting strategies that you can do that will make the customer feel more seen and mm-hmm. appreciated and at the same time get you a better marketing ROI. There is, it does take a bit of a leadership mindset shift to create that test to learn culture or more importantly, protect that culture. Uh, you and I both know from how the retail grind uh, at an exec level and, and throughout is it's 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 an intense full-on experience. Uh, when I was doing consulting at a, at a brand level, an agency side, I never appreciated uh, what the six years at Walmart and Asda has taught me in terms of the retail true atmosphere of what you have to do to to right. drive that business. It is a full-on intense experience. And so yeah. it takes a, a, a bit of a top-down leadership mindset to say, we're going to protect some test and learn space, headspace, and we're going to invest in that talent. And we're going to make sure that that is always on almost that yeah. test and learn whether that's even store prototypes or making sure you've got something new in the pipeline. And my guess is with, with COVID coming that those that had good tests already in play um, were accelerating those tests and were in a better position than those that weren't testing in some of the areas that they needed to be testing or caught a lot more flat footed, a lot more difficult. For sure. I mean, I know one, one former client that um, and one other company happened to know that was not a client um, where I had visibility to things they had in their pipeline. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why they didn't launch them prior to the mm-hmm. pandemic because they were good ideas, <laughs> I believe, uh, that would have would have resonated well with the customer. But in any event, they were, because they were um, developing an innovation pipeline and were doing a lot of testing and, and honestly had what, they don't call it this, neither one of them, but what I consider an R&D budget yeah. because that was part of what was built into their system and they had that pipeline. Yeah, they were able to get things ready, whereas lots of other companies have been scrambling to catch up or doing things kind of, you know, in a very jury-rigged way, which, you know, yeah. in some cases has, has been well, okay. Well, that was survival. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, survival, uh, well... <laughs> Fear of imminent death is, is often quite a good motivator, it turns out. So, 
Uh, One of the things that I'm seeing through uh, the COVID with retail, especially, is it, it picks up on number your number two essential about being human centered. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps because of the lo- how things feel more local now with retail. Yeah. Uh, even if you're a mass retailer, you're, now you kind of know your store manager a bit more maybe than you might have in the past because of all the localization of what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, which is, seems to be part of human centered. Uh, do you see see that as something that's going to stick? of the role of retail in their local communities? I hope so. Um, I, I think that, again, there's, there's, I think, been this dichotomy between kind of the art and the science or the left mm-hmm. and right brain that's, that's part of a lot of retail. Um, what I try to get to, well, if anything, maybe there's too many ideas in that chapter, but part <laughs> of what I try to get to in that chapter is this idea that when we think about how to be more remarkable, uh, it's absolutely important to, to understand the customer better. And part of the argument I make is we need to really understand the customer fundamentally at a more empathy driven level, not just kind of features and benefits, or at least yep. dial both of those in. But it's also about expanding what we're doing is as organizations and brands to the world more broadly you know the most obvious one being our associates or our vendor partners or agency partners or what have you but i think the role that retailers play in local communities and in the world you know writ large so i i think the covid situation for a lot of folks uh is engendering more empathy Mm-hmm. And and um, as much as it's a cliche to to see that in lots of cases we are all connected or in this yeah. together, and so I'd like to think that that will persist. But we also, even before the COVID crisis, certainly had brands that were making their local involvement or what they're doing for the world and the community very much part of their brand proposition. So whether that's yeah say Nike with um, their local stores and, and designing their stores to be more of the neighborhood they're in, both in terms of product, but also service and who they're hiring and how the stores are designed. But, you know, brands like Patagonia, sure. uh, whole resale circular economy market is speaking to uh, societal issues, climate change, sustainability. So I think those trends have been building for several years I certainly think, uh, again, even before the pandemic, we're seeing more consumers say that the uh, social agenda or the Mm. impact on the community or the planet is important to them. And they're selecting brands that reflect that, or there's more pressure on, you know, big, big corporations like Walmart to have sustainability and, and other aspects be part of what they do. So, so I think the momentum is already going in that area. Doubt that there's any real going back and, and actually with any luck, there's an acceleration. I don't know where it was in that, in that chapter around human centered, but uh, one of the thoughts that struck me was I think by calling customers, customers, you know, that is such a transactional description yeah. of a relationship. And right. it didn't really occur to me uh, until recently that what if we, called it people, you know, and when you start looking at, you're really serving people, right. you get a bit more human centered pretty quickly than thinking about customer. And there's this little wall of transaction when you think about people as customers, don't you think? 
Yeah, I mean, no, I absolutely agree. You know that that uh, sometimes I feel like that was the the hippie section of my book where I was a little <laughs> bit, you know, peace. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's aside from my own uh, whatever spiritual view of the world or something. But I do think there is something powerful from a branding standpoint, uh, particularly for premium brands to say, well, look, you know, we're not just selling you a product and engineering features and benefits for you. We are, we are solving a, a problem for you or we're creating a story for you that goes above and beyond uh, simply this product. Because, in, you know, in some cases, I think this is a big part of human-centered design. You know, we're solving a higher level problem. I think in that chapter, I talk about what uh, Harvard Business School professor Ted Levitt said was people don't buy a drill because mm -hmm. they, they want a drill. They buy a drill because they want a hole. You know, what is that outcome? Yeah. You know, customer jobs to be done, as others have called it. You know, what is that thing we're doing for you? And if some part of what we're doing for you is um, a high, solving a higher order problem, like being a good citizen, or feeling part of a movement or finding people in your tribe, you know, like-minded people that like the same products or like the same causes or want to go running or hiking or, you know, you, know, mm -hmm. you can imagine all those things. I think that is, um, I think from a very selfish business standpoint, we are connecting with people in a deeper way. We are building loyalty and, and if they really feel passionate about what we're doing, they're going to tell the others. And that's the yep. most powerful marketing of all. So I think from a very selfish, practical business standpoint, thinking about people more broadly and about their their emotional connection to our brand is is good. I also just think it happens also to be a better thing for for society. But yeah, uh, you know, that's well, that's and, a different gonna, yeah, for sure. And if you're going to go down that path, back to your point on customer journey mapping. You know, you'll want to make sure that if you do have a problem and you end up in the call center making a call, you're not going through a call tree that puts you on the hold for an hour telling you you're a very important customer. There's you can't you have to stay harmonized then with that purpose through even your weakest touch point uh, is going to be judged and especially in today's social uh, context where it's easy for a customer to talk and share their their brand experience on some of those touch points that are, you know, just miserable for a lot of people. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think not that this was good, but I think if you had a really bad customer experience 15 or 20 years ago, you know, the people that heard about it was your family or your neighbor or the person mm -hmm. you golf with or went to church with or, you know, whatever. It could be fairly, fairly contained. Now, you know, it can blow up on you very, very easily, particularly if certain people are willing. I mean, I had a very bad experience with a national retailer and uh, it was like so antithetical to, uh, and it is going to show up, I'm not going to name them, but it is going to yeah. show up in a future piece of writing of mine. But, but it, the, the experience was just so egregious and almost so comical yeah. that I, I almost felt like I just had to talk about it on social media and I just <laughs> showed uncharacteristic restraint. Yeah. But, I, you know, I easily could have, and certainly there are people mm. with way bigger followings that, mm. that get very vocal about that customer experience. So it's just, aside from you should take care of the customer and, yeah. and live true to your brand promise, it, things can go really south for you quite quickly. So, quite, so and, that's I, and I think that's what's different and versus five, 10 years ago, um, yeah. how quickly uh, it ends up being a letter to the CEO. Mm -hmm. And, you know, surprisingly, 
how many it, people would be surprised saying how many letters a CEO of a retailer gets. Um, oh yeah, right. it's 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 a lot uh, on yes. a daily basis, and so uh, that that does have a, a big impact. Um, so that's kind of human centered. Um, other things that might other essentials that you have that I think link back to customer centric would be uh, essential number five being personal. Uh, right. Is that really about one-to-one or is that a, is that a, a different concept than actually one-to-one marketing? Well, there's a few things the the core of it, I think is, is really a, a customer insight uh, or being customer led in your strategy, which is to really push to deeper, mm. deeper levels of understanding and then acting on those, those insights. So that could come from exhaustive customer journey mapping Mm. Um, or other forms of, of research to really understand how to be intensely customer relevant. I do talk a little bit about getting closer to one-to-one. So some of that is more from an analytic standpoint of, you know, campaign management and a lot of the things that a lot of marketing technology companies have been pushing for years. Um, there's also the aspect of uh, curation, mm-hmm. uh, being able to go out and, saying a more common or historically traditional customer service, personal shopping thing of like, well, if I understand you as an individual personal shopper or as Netflix, I can, you know, go out and find things for you and curate them. So what I'm showing you is much more likely to be to your liking. Uh, Stitch fix, you know, there's a lot, there's services that aren't literally one-to-one but try to understand you as an individual and bring stuff to you in an edited or curated fashion. And then there's also the aspect of purely custom products. So it's becoming a lot easier through technology to either literally make something for you on a one-to-one basis or have enough permutations and combinations like um, some of the custom sneakers guys Mm -hmm. and so forth that it's not technically one-to-one, but there's enough variety that it feels built for you. Mm. So I think the the underlying idea or what the outcome we want is the customer to feel like, okay, you really get me, you know me, you understand me, you value me. So therefore the, my experience with you, whether that's email or shopping in your store or going to your website or signing up for a subscription feels very personal and relevant because the more intensely customer relevant, we become the more we enroll people in our brand. So, so, you know, that can play out in a, in a pretty wide spectrum. Yeah. If you want to talk about the the methods of how you get that understanding and clearly on a online pure play, you've got different tools there to get that understanding what customers may or may not want. But when you get into physical stores, yeah. I still think there's a place for behavioral, like observational research of like a pocket oh, sure. might take uh, that you just cannot, you're not going to see it in the data side. You just sure. have to be in that store and see it. Is that still your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think what's, what's fantastic is that, um, and I don't, you know, I think in reality, as much as it gets marketed pretty heavily, there aren't a lot of companies that are really applying AI uh, machine learning. Um, no. may, maybe in their investor deck, but when you actually look at what's being applied, it's still pretty limited, but there's certainly lots of technology that is evolving pretty quickly that allow you to make inferences from various observations. And, and so, and I think that's more outbound marketing or in support of things, mm-hmm. but absolutely there's, there's lots of, um, I guess, 
ethnographic research or whatever mm-hmm. you would call it that can inform your overall strategies. And so, uh, and there's some pretty cool advances there, of, you know, cameras being put in stores and tracking, you know, heat indexes and things like that. Some of which has been around for a while, but it's being taken to the next level. I, I, I have never found, and I've been involved with customer insight and retail for you know, 30 years or so and tried a lot of different techniques. I think there's generally speaking, no one approach that's going to get you to where you need to get to. I think even some of the companies like Stitch Fix that are mm-hmm. very, very dependent on data science are having an overlay of human beings and conversation. I think some of that actually helps their prediction. Some of that is being responsive to consumers want to talk to another human being sometimes, whether there are any, <laughs> whether the, the robot could do a technically better job or not, um, there's a need for connection and feeling heard. And so I think we have to look at all the techniques that are out there and, and find the ones that work best for us. Things are constantly changing. So yeah. it, it's worth staying on, on top of it. What's the best things I had an understanding a customer that's going to get us yeah. the input we need to be more relevant and remarkable. Some simple things could be do you could do is just go sit at a call center on the phone mm-hmm. for a day and you yeah. it's just surprising what you hear and the challenges they have and it creates a lot of empathy for the customer challenges they get. And so the call center, reading customer letters, go out in stores, you know, it is a portfolio, a a smorgasbord of tools you have to put together to, to really get your dial dialed in on the customer. I think. I feel like, you know, merchandising, store operations, customer insight, they're, they're all a mix of art and science. Certain situations will lead you more to the science side or the art, art side. But I think you need both. And there are some obvious limitations to um, even the most advanced, sexy technologies that, that uh, won't get you there. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a job a bunch of years ago where I had call center reporting to me, and I used to listen to calls all the time. And it was probably the most amazing research. And, you know, even when I would, I mean, I would listen to calls, and then sometimes I would take calls. And when I would take calls, it gave me the opportunity to actually get into a, a dialogue. And even though it was a relatively small sample size, um, it just added to understanding in a way that um, our pretty large sample quantitative surveys just just didn't. So yeah, I don't think you can, there aren't too many business where you can kind of sit in the command center and you know, just screen things and, and, and read reports, uh, particularly mm. particularly certain kinds of retail, which are just fundamentally more emotional, yeah. tactile, you know, things that are just harder to capture in bits and bytes. What people may not understand about retail is just how uh, diverse the skill sets required to do it well, if you talk about a total retail, can be. And mm-hmm. I found it to be one of the most exciting career spaces to be in. If, if we shift gears just a little bit and talk about the talent pipeline and specifically perhaps what's coming out of universities today, uh, a career in retail for if you're a student, a freshman or, or sophomore may have some uh, misbeliefs about what it really is. And if they, yeah. there's a large part that feels like it's folding sweaters in a department store. Uh, but actually, if you look at all the areas of logistics and uh, the things you could get into from a retail career, what would be your pitch 
to a, a college student that might be trying to understand, should I get into retail or not? Uh, hopefully it's don't. <laughs> hopefully it's not don't get into retail. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, I mean, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, I think it's been true for a long time um, that there is a, a really wide range of, of skills and talents that are needed across different retailers. And if anything, I think it's gotten you know, even more diverse because there's this whole kind of engineering, mm -hmm. uh, advanced technology uh, skill set that's becoming more prominent. But I think the first question is, do they see them, and I hate to be too black and white about this, but are they more uh, attracted to kind of the left brain or the right brain side of mm -hmm. retail? Because I still think there is plenty of art-driven <laughs> or mm -hmm. artist-driven creative pieces of retail, whether that's visual merchandising, you know, uh, mm -hmm. site design, um, aspects of, of certain kinds of merchandising, fashion merchandising, certainly. Um, so there's maybe a little bit of a fork in the road, but if they're more like, I'm not sure or balanced, uh, one of the most interesting things I've seen develop over the last few years, and I was fortunate to set this up when I was at Newman Marcus, was really the kind of the bridge between the traditional merchandising or store operations side and the more analytic side, these, hmm. and they're called a lot of different things, but business analysts or strategy analysts that are doing really interesting problem solving, but they're sitting in many cases between the technology or the PhD statisticians or data scientists and the people more on the front lines um, in, in different roles and trying to figure out how to bring those two sides together and problem solve. And I think that often takes somebody, whether they're an undergraduate or MBA or masters or, or what have you, but it takes a more generalist business skill set. Uh, maybe some of the disciplines you learn academically on a more technical side and applies them in a really, really powerful way. So I think, you know, companies are at different stages of, of bringing that sort of talent in and whether it resides in strategy or marketing or, or what have you might be different by company. But I, th I think in many cases, you're really bringing in a very interesting mix of skills. It's kind of the leading edge of where applied business is in the retail setting. And I think there's a tremendous demand. So I'd like to think that there's, there's upside in terms of uh, yeah. career progression and growth. Well, uh, if you are interested in data science, hardly it's hard to find an industry that creates so much data to analyze than a retail environment. I mean, you can right. quickly accumulate millions and millions of data uh, fields uh, on a daily basis to, but the, the challenge has been taking that data and applying it to a real business challenge and a case study or user story that you're really trying to connect the dots on. So I think it's a rich field uh, yeah. with a great base of data to start working on big data. And like you said, I think it's still early days for us to get the full power of that data science capability applied to real business challenges that mm -hmm. create value creation for the business. Those are still, in most cases, it's still in front of us instead of with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're very, I mean, I've seen various studies, Forrester and others have done about which, where companies are on kind of this dirt, digital mm -hmm. or data insight maturity. Yeah. And I, I don't think, and, you know, I haven't independently validated those studies, but I trust, I trust Forrester, these okay. companies. And, and I think, yeah, they show 70, 80% of companies are still relatively immature and really yeah. applying data science in a yeah. super impactful and meaningful way. 
Well, I have the privilege of working with the Walton College of Business and the always proactive Professor Molly Rapert in the marketing department heard you and I were going to speak today. So she gathered a few questions from her students. Um, do you mind taking a few of those questions? Be happy to. Excellent, excellent. The first is from uh, Trevor Mayhew, and he is a marketing major. Mr. Dennis, I watched your video titled Omnichannel is Dead and the Future is Harmonized Retail. I was wondering if you could talk about some examples of retailers that are really achieving harmonized retail successfully during this time of COVID. Sure. So, um, well, first, the reason I, I like harmonized over omnichannel is, is really this idea of all aspects of the customer journey really singing beautifully together. Um, and I think there are quite a few companies that are doing well at this. The, the easiest ones to point to are a lot of the um, digitally native vertical brands. So the mm -hmm. Warby Parkers or Untuckets, but these companies that started online and then moved into retail. And I think they had two important advantages, at least. One was because they were rooted in a digital experience, they just translated to that physical store and they never created this kind of siloed thinking. I think they just mm -hmm. got that. It, the customer was the channel. It needed to be all one shopping experience and customers are going to sometimes transact in a store and some transact online and sometimes get served in the store with a product. And so they just saw it as one thing. And then the second advantage they had is they weren't burdened by a lot of legacy systems or legacy thinking. So they got to design it in a harmonized way as they grew and deployed it. So lots of those sort of retailers, I think, um, do it very well. Uh, but I think, I think companies like Walmart and Best Buy and Nordstrom um, are getting pretty darn good at this. I think they have largely broken down the silos. I think they have seen that um, the integration between digital and physical uh, is important and have put a lot of the, the steps in, in place. So, um, and I think if you point to some of the success, not just during the pandemic because they sell essentials, but some of the success prior to the pandemic um, among those companies, a lot I think can be attributed to their enhancing their e-commerce capabilities, but I think more importantly, seeing their stores as assets when they are well integrated. You picked a great word with harmonized. I, I think that word applies also to harmonizing merchandising and store operations. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's not an or, and uh, it's easy to get caught on pendulums of it's all about digital, all about physical, but harmonized is a great word that probably is uh, more important to retailers than anybody else because of the competing things that you have to balance all the time. Yeah, and I, you know, not to get too hung up on the semantics, but I, I also felt like a lot of the lexicon that had been developed you know, if you want to be literal about it, omni-channel is, you know, all channels and yeah. or everywhere, right? And I don't think it's so important to be everywhere. I think it's important to show up powerfully in the ways that matter to the customer right. in that moment or um, seamless. Um, but I don't know many customers who say, oh, you know, I'd really love Sears if they didn't have so many seams. Like, I, it's not <laughs> to me, it's not a customer-friendly no, word. Right. Not right. that harmonized is normally used in retail, but I mean, I think it at least is more evocative yeah. and speaks to a positive right. as opposed to eliminating a negative and kind of an inside baseball way of talking about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Our next question comes from Bailey Stetmeyer. She is a marketing major. 
Mr. Dennis, I enjoyed listening to your video, Making Retail Memorable. And if you look at the retailers that are really doing an effective job in making retail memorable, what are three common characteristics that you think account for their success? Sure. Well, that's a great question, Bailey. I have, maybe uh, not so easy to boil down, but I, I, I think generally when it comes to being memorable, first of all, it has to be very unique and distinctive. You know, something, so I, I draw heavily on Seth Godin's work in Purple Cow. So if you think mm -hmm. of most cows being brown, the purple cow is the one that really stands out. So I think minimally it needs to stand out uh, in a powerful way. The second thing though is, you know, you can stand out and not be useful or relevant. So, um, so what is it that you are doing in a powerful way for me um, that really solves a problem or connects with me? Um, and then I think the third, and this is the hardest thing to do is not only are you unique, not only do you solve a problem for me, but do you give me a powerful story to share? Because I think the brands, and again, drawing on some of Seth's work, the ideas that spread are the ideas that win. So how is what you're doing for me give me more than just a product, more than just something I'm going to keep to myself, but something I'm going to say to my friends or on Instagram, this is amazing. I can't believe how fantastic this product is or how good this service is or how they treated me, you know, whatever, but something that literally causes them to remark upon because that's that's what i mean by remarkable is not just that it's different and distinct but literally people will spread the story of your brand that's easier said than done it's a story where it's a shopping experience worth sharing right. uh, and boy i tell you that also stacks up against what i've seen in terms of the best roi on your media spend is that shared earned media that gets shared so it's got a lot of truth to it all the way through the line I Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's an older idea. I think what I try to do in the book is to just really, you know, say that it's so hard today with so much competition and so much noise to be that that signal amidst the, the mm -hmm. noise. And part of that is, yes, having something different, having something that solves a real problem. But what gets amplified, you know, that's the thing that breaks through and, right. and carries forward. And yes, is amazing ROI if you can mm -hmm. make it happen. Excellent. Last question, a bonus question from Jonah Rapert. He is a Walton Honors senior and a major in marketing. He's actually a double minor in economics and legal studies. So uh, here's Jonah. Jonah sounds like a busy guy. Mr. Dennis, in your book, <laughs> Remarkable Retail, I found it interesting to see the chart of the top 10 retailers by decade and to learn that Doug McMillan keeps a copy of this with them on his phone to remind him how quickly retailer fortunes can change. Given all that has happened with COVID this year, what retailers would you expect to see at the top of this list at the end of 2020, noting that Walmart, Kroger, and Amazon topped the 2017 list? Well, I haven't looked. That's a great question. I haven't, uh, and it's actually something I need to update. Um, I haven't looked at where some of these retailers stand this year, but certainly Amazon, Walmart, and Kroger will be near the top. Uh, some of that is just their sheer size. Some of that has been, um, you know, for better or worse, one of the things that COVID has done has tilted the fortunes towards um, those brands that are selling essential merchandise. So, uh, and it's also 
given, um, and I hesitate to use this word, a, a gift to certain um, very strong digital retailers like Wayfair, uh, for example. I don't think they'll make the top 10, but they have had some, some huge growth because of stores being shut down um, and, and just the kind of tendency to be digital first in, in a lot of products. So um, I don't know how dramatically actually the, the 2020 list will change from 2017. Um, I think it's a little bit of the, the rich getting richer and the winners and losers in this kind of bifurcation um, effect. But yeah, I mean, Home Depot, Lowe's, Best Buy, um, the big supermarkets, Walmart, Target, Amazon, have all done disproportionately well during the pandemic, but they were they were already on a good trajectory, and and certainly, um, you know, outside of Amazon, the the brick and mortar guys have really improved their their digital capabilities, which has served them well, uh, hmm. also during this time. Great perspective, uh, boy. This has been fantastic, Steve. Uh, any last sharing thoughts, either to students or to faculty that are uh, working diligently in this space? Uh, it, what gives you hope? about even though I could be quite cynical, <laughs> I imagine you could be as well, but, yeah. but you know, as you look out to the future, what gives you hope? I think the main thing that gives me hope, um, and in fact, I was just working on some writing on this, is I think clearly the pandemic has had some very awful effects, um, you know, most obviously on, on um, people's health and economic well-being. And so it is hard sometimes to be hopeful when we've seen so much trouble and destruction. But I think one of the things we've learned from other crises is that when there is a lot of change, there is also a lot of opportunity and innovation hmm. that's created. So I think some of the more agile, innovative companies are being stretched to try things because business as usual is not working for them and, and probably won't work going forward, even if we have a good recovery. But I think the other thing, and I saw an article the other day about how the rate of business formation has really spiked in the last few months. And I think it seems like these times bring out entrepreneurs. Um, now, maybe that's because they lost their job and they're scrambling to find something new to do. Yeah. Maybe because rents have dropped in uh, some physical space, it suddenly makes their idea workable because the rent is half the price, or maybe a company has gone out of business, but there's still a market opportunity if they're well capitalized. So I just think there's lots of innovation that happens in this period of time. And, you know, that will create new and different businesses next year and, and beyond that will be pretty exciting. And I think it's exciting if you're a student or just an entrepreneur, or maybe somebody who's been working for a big company that wants to go something, do something new. And, it, and this is the thing that gives you the push, even if it looks pretty tough right now. Great word. I found retail to be a very exciting space that it seems like you could get your idea into action pretty quickly and see results almost instantly. So it's one of the fun places to work. And even though at times it can be quite challenging. Steve, thank you so much. I'll be sharing more in the uh, notes around how to access your book. Make sure people have a chance to get connected to your podcast. It's uh, quite, you've got some great guests in there and some great insights. And so, uh, and again, correct, congratulations on getting that launched and uh, being a thought leader in this industry that desperately needs people to provide that direction. So thank you. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening in to a powerful conversation with Steve Dennis. My takeaway is that no matter how difficult the dive is, there is no escape in the elephant in the room that retailers can't really thrive in the long run 
by optimizing and cost-cutting, especially if the proposition isn't remarkable. Time has proven that to be true over and over. The answers for becoming remarkable can always be found, not by copying competition, but by listening to the customer. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production.